0: Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Newark, New Jersey. With me is Jeff Buechner, permanent lecturer in philosophy at Rutgers University, Newark. He and Gary Ostertag run the Saul Kripke Center at the City University of New York Graduate Center. And he's here to talk to us about Saul Kripke and functionalism. Jeff Buchner, welcome.
1: Hi, Matt. Nice to see you today. Saul Kripke is...
0: I think, widely acknowledged to be one of the great figures in philosophy of the past century. And he did all sorts of seminal work in logic, epistemology, metaphysics, philosophy of language. And you've been involved in sort of bringing back some of his unpublished work and um, getting it out there again recently. So how did that all get started? How did you come to know
1: Saul Kripke? I did my graduate work at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. I decided that I would go to one of Saul's seminars in Princeton, we have a nice reciprocation policy. Rutgers students can take courses at Princeton and Princeton students can take courses at Rutgers. So I decided to take one of his courses and before I had taken the course I thought of his work as the most important work in philosophy and I had over the years heard him give talks and was astonished by his brilliance. I went to Princeton for one of his seminars and uh, it was such an extraordinary experience. He is unlike anyone else, I mean almost supernaturally brilliant. <laughs> and so I, uh, I took several seminars, more seminars with Saul than with anyone else in my department. I also became friends with Saul in the 90s. I used to, after seminars, uh, drive him to the supermarket pick up some groceries, and we continued talking about seminar matters, and went to dinner with him many times, and uh, over a period of three or four years, I became his friend. In 1997, he retired from Princeton, and the problem at that point was what happens to all the stuff in his office, for one thing. I said to him that I would... uh, take care of all of his material in his office. In fact, move it out of his office and either move it to his house or to my office in New Brunswick. He initially was reluctant to do so. He didn't like the idea of anyone seeing his unpublished stuff. That's to say, the official unpublished stuff and the unofficial published stuff, he was reluctant to let anyone see the unofficial unpublished stuff. By official unpublished stuff I meant the John Locke lectures and a couple of other things. So I don't know what accounted for the sea change in him, but suddenly he said to me, it's fine. You can take care of all the stuff and in fact I'll give you a key to my house and you can look through my house for unpublished stuff, any kinds of papers and put them together. I spent actually an inordinate amount of time doing this, several years. Which unfortunately at that uh, interfered with my dissertation work. I eventually defended my dissertation in the uh, January of 2003. But between 1997 and 2003, uh, I spent a great deal of time organizing Souls' manuscripts and actually finding them. His office was incredible in disarray. The um, administrative staff at Princeton did not do a very good job of keeping his papers in order and I found folders several hundred papers and the folder would be marked unknown and it would consist of one or two pages from manuscripts people had sent Saul from some of Saul's manuscripts it's a good thing I recognized his handwriting because in one case I pieced together his response to Paul Bonassar's famous talk on mathematical truth. Very few people know this, but Saul responded to that, and there's a handwritten manuscript of about 30 pages. I found two of those pages in a folder of several hundred pages (laughs) marked unknown. The rest of the pages... I found in his house, scattered in various places. Several were in the garage, interclated with thousands of New York Times that had been accumulated over the years. I felt like an archeologist reconstructing a piece of pottery. I would find pages from manuscripts that Saul had written in various places, none of which were contiguous. (laughs) Saul gave me, he he let me look anywhere in his house for manuscripts. In 1992, when he was visiting Oxford, he emailed Ned Hall and Alan Hedgick, who were at that time graduate students at Princeton, and he asked them to go into his office and look for his unpublished manuscripts and make a list of them. They created a list of the obvious suspects, that's to say the official unpublished manuscripts, a list of about seven manuscripts. Here's the difference when you are given full reign to look throughout his house and at all of his manuscripts and the time to do so. I compiled a list of the unpublished manuscripts in 1998, a year after I started the project of of organizing the manuscripts. And uh, my list consisted of 110 unpublished manuscripts. And in addition to that, the tape recordings and the notes, in particular the notes that Nathan Solomon took of Saul's seminars when he was a visiting professor at Princeton, 1978 to 81, I think, or 1979 to 82. Some extraordinary seminars, David Lewis and Saul gave a joint seminar on possible worlds. Nathan Solomon was the note-taker for that seminar. It's an almost mythic quality to it. Mm -hmm. Saul continued that seminar for one full year after. So Saul gave really three seminars on possible worlds. And in the succeeding seminars, attempted to derive possible world semantics from considerations about infinitary logics, infinitary modal logics, an incredible set of seminars. In that same period, he also developed a notion of fulfillability. Gödel's original incompleteness theorem was syntactic, That's to say, he didn't show an actual theorem. He didn't show there's an actual theorem, which is a truth of piano arithmetic but can't be proved in a theory strong enough to accommodate piano arithmetic. It took until 1977 to find an actual example of such a theorem. And the difference is it's called a model theoretic proof of independence. That's to say, you demonstrate a model of a formal system in which the theorem is true and a model in which it's false. And that shows that the theorem is independent of the system. And that's what was done for establishing the independence of the parallel postulate in Euclidean geometry. It's a model theoretic proof, not a syntactic one. Gödel's original proof was syntactic. It took until 1977 to find a model theoretic proof of the incompleteness theorem. Well, what Sol did was to extract the combinatorial features. It's a finite form of Ramsey's theorem. And uh, the finite form of Ramsey's theorem was the one that, in 1977, Leo Harrington and Jeff Paris gave as an example of a true unprovable theorem in piano arithmetic. Saul extracted the combinatorial features of that theorem and created a concept called fulfillability analogous to satisfiability in model theory. And it allowed him to create non-standard models to show the independence of a truth of piano arithmetic. He also, in that period, gave a seminar on materialism and the philosophy of mind, and has a very nice example of a zombie argument about 20 years before David Chalmers developed it. But that was an incredible period. For many years, I and another student of Saul Kripke's Alan Berger tried to get a Saul Kripke Center started and uh, it was very difficult to do so because funding was very hard to come by. Then in 2007, Saul Kripke's father decided that it would be good to have a Saul Kripke Center and donated money to the Graduate Center to fund the Saul Kripke Center. So that was the start of the Saul Kripke Center. Between 1997 and 2007, that 10-year period, where were all of the boxes containing Saul's unpublished manuscripts? Initially they were in my office and Ernie Lepore also helped me out and let me store some boxes in his office as well. But at one point, Peter Klein said to me, you never know who might have a key to the offices in the building. He said, you know, probably a better thing to have those boxes in some place other than your office. He wasn't complaining that there wasn't enough space in my office. He was worried that someone would simply break into the office, because it was well known on campus that Solzheim published manuscripts were in my office and that there was quite a lot of material, about 12,000 pages (laughs) worth of material. So I took all of those boxes and stored them on the front porch of my house where I live for many years. I also made photocopies of all of all of the published manuscripts, which was a smart idea because some of them were unique. There was just one copy. In some cases, there were handwritten manuscripts and just one copy of them. So I made photocopies of everything, all 12,000 pages over a period of years, which was a smart move. The boxes were stored on my front porch until the spring of 2008, when we decided to move them into the Kripke Center. I thought they were secured against rain, dirt, And they were, because I had uh, plastic tarps over them. What I didn't know is that there were mice (laughs) that lived underneath my front porch. And I remember opening up one box that I hadn't opened up since I put it on the porch. And I found that the perimeter of several manuscripts had been eaten by the mice. But the mice must have understood the importance of these manuscripts because they never, there were no manuscripts they had eaten in which they had actually eaten any print. So they had simply nibbled away at the outer margins of the manuscript and saved the printed aspects of it for posterity. (laughs) But over the years, what we've done at the Kripke Center is work on the manuscripts and decide and talk with Saul about which ones we will um, publish in a series of volumes. The first of which came out two years ago, Philosophical Troubles. That's volume one of his collected papers. The John Locke Lectures, Reference in Existence, came out this past year in the spring. The next volume will be his lectures on de re attitudes toward natural numbers. And that's an interesting problem. It's a response to a famous paper of Paul Benacerraf, What Numbers Could Not Be. And Benacerraf argued that numbers couldn't be mathematical objects, but rather structures. And his view was that any recursive progression will do. So the question was, is Zermelo-Frankel set theory, or von Neumann set theory, the correct way, say, of representing as a mathematical object a number. Point is, it doesn't matter. As long as you have some recursive progression that satisfies certain properties of the natural numbers, that'll be fine. And what's all worried about is, if any progression will do, then what accounts for the fact that we work in a decimal system? And he looked at this very carefully, and he thought, you know, the fact that we have 10 fingers, you know, an anthropomorphic account of why we, in fact, use decimal system. won't do the job. He developed some interesting ideas about how it is that we come to get direct contact with numbers, what philosophers say, de re contact with numbers. How is it we acquire this? These lectures concern this issue. And uh, just
0: to clarify, by contact we mean how do we come to know facts about numbers?
1: That's right, Right. that's right, yeah, yeah. You know, you can acquire knowledge about something by understanding propositions about the thing, or you can be in contact with the thing in some way. And philosophers have worried about what it is to be in direct contact with something, as opposed to being in contact with something via an intermediary, say, a sentence, i.e., what the sentence expresses, namely a proposition. So Saul worried about what are the conditions under which we acquire de re contact with natural numbers. And that's the subject of several lectures that he gave in the early 90s and uh, seminars at Princeton and then at the Graduate Center. And the next volume in the series of his collected works will be on this. There's probably enough material for at least a dozen volumes, which is pretty extraordinary. Just last year, I was flabbergasted. In 1976, at Hebrew University, Saul gave his famous talk, A Puzzle About Belief, which was published in 1979. And for many years, we had an onion skin typed transcription of A Puzzle About Belief. I never looked through that. The paper was subsequently published. One day, I was just out of curiosity, I started to look through the original transcription of A Puzzle About Belief, and I couldn't believe what I found. At that 1976 conference, Peter Strawson gave a talk, Maybes and Might-Have-Beens, which Saul commented on. At least that's acknowledged in the published version of Strawson's talk, that Saul commented on the talk. Well, what I found mixed in with the transcription of A Puzzle About Belief was a transcription of Saul's remarks. It was a 20-page paper, response to Peter Strawson's Maybes and It Might Have Been's. That paper might never, Saul had forgotten about it. When I told him, he was amazed. He didn't remember that it had been, in fact, transcribed. And if I hadn't looked through a transcription of a paper that was subsequently published, we might never have found this. So we're constantly finding new things, you know, in the manuscripts.
0: Yeah, so this is, uh, these are some exciting times. We're um, getting ready to put forth work that has been in progress by one of the great minds of our time over the past 40 years, and it's finally going to come to light. What, so one of the hitherto unpublished ideas of Saul Kripke's that you've been especially interested in is his argument against the thesis in the philosophy of mind referred to as functionalism. Maybe we could start off with a brief overview about, of what, what does a functionalist think?
1: Yeah, well, in order to stand, understand functionalism, it's necessary to look at the historical context in which it arises. And in particular, the person who first proposed functionalism, Hilary Putnam, Initially, it was Putnam who argued against what was, in the 1950s, the dominant view in philosophy of mind, namely mind-body identity theories. The view was that the mind is simply the brain. And Putnam argued, he gave what is called a multi-realization argument against mind-brain identity theories, and it consists of the following. In different species, in different species of animals. Mental states, say a pain state, will be physically realized in different ways. So if you think that the mind is reducible to the brain, the problem of the mental state, say a pain state, being physically realized in different ways in different species is that you won't have a single item to count as a brain state, but a disjunction of items, the separate disjuncts consisting of the brain states of different species of animals. And if we bring in beings from other planets or solar systems um, or universes, then the disjunction will be subsequently longer if they have mental states. So it makes no sense to say Something is reducible and thus explainable by a reduction base which consists of a fairly lengthy disjunction. People responded to Putnam and said, look, let's not worry about other species. Let's just look at human beings. Let's go local, as they say. That was one response, but Putnam was dissatisfied and thought, is there a better way of explaining the nature of mental states. And he thought, why look at physical aspects which can vary in different ways. Let's instead look at what is it that a mental state does. That's to say what kinds of cognitive functions, what functions do we perform say when we think. And at that time computers were becoming more important in technology and in science and the idea that a mental state could be described at some level as a computational state was one that was very enticing to Putnam. For one thing, it looks very easy to say what it is that a computer does when it solves a problem. It would be nice to have a view of what a human mind does that makes it look as easy as what a computer does when it solves a problem. And so the view was that we should look at the human mind as a computational device, as a machine, at one level of description. This would do a number of things. If you were worried about how reliable mental processes were, this would stave off skepticism about their reliability. Because we take machines to be reliable when they are operating correctly, that's to say not undergoing a malfunction. And we have an idea of what accounts for that reliability in terms of the algorithm, say, that the machine runs when it solves a particular problem. And in the same way, we would then be able to account for the reliability of mental processes. But the other thing is it would give what's called a scientific metaphysics, that's to say, What's the nature, of, metaphysical questions are what's the nature of this thing? What's the nature of a human mind? To give a scientific metaphysics is to describe the nature of the thing in terms of some ideas or concepts from science. And so that's attractive to some philosophers, not to all philosophers. But the person who probably argued most cogently for functionalism in terms of what it would do for cognitive science was Jerry Fodor and his view is that functionalism is the only theory of the human mind which is going to give an account of how thought processes preserve truth number one number two it's the only theory which will give an account of how natural language can have what's called combinatorial structure that gives you such features as compositionality and systematicity. So, systematicity is more abstractly, if you understand ARB, then you understand BRA, where R is some relation. So, if you understand Jack hit Jill, you'll understand Jill hit Jack. So, that has a systematic relation. Compositionality is the way in which complex sentences are created out of components. And if you understand the components and the process by which you put the components together, that's to say how you compose the sentence, then you have an account of compositionality. And these were very important for Fodor in cognitive science, in linguistics in particular, but certainly also in any cognitive science that wants to account for how thinking works and what it is. So functionalism was very attractive.
0: And intuitively, it does seem like it gets us around the how is my pain the same as the frog's pain problem. You know, if you think of the human mind as very similar to a computer, it's just very intuitive that you could have two different computers with very different chip architectures or something, but in some sense, they're running the same programs.
1: Well, that's another thing. You could have different people with different, say, operating systems. Uh, whatever that makes, but they would be doing the same sort of thing. That's to say computing the same function. You can look at the mind from several different levels of description. One would be, what function does it compute? The second level would be, what sort of software does it use to compute it? And this might vary from person to person, even though from person to person what function they do compute is the same. And then how this software is implemented in neural tissue. David Marr was a cognitive scientist who did brilliant work in computational theory of vision in the early 80s before he prematurely died of cancer. He was the one who thought of three levels of description. The most fundamental level, though, is what function do we compute, and then what kinds of computations are necessary to compute that function. That's the second level of description. But that's subsequent to the original version of functionalism proposed by Putnam in 1960. So the idea was that um, the mind is a machine. There were, at the time, different versions of functionalism. Machine functionalism is the idea that the mind is a computing machine. Uh, There was also something called causal theoretical functionalism, which is the view that the mind mental states are simply nodes in a causal network where folk psychology will typically describe the nodes in the network. This is a view of functionalism that David Lewis proposed. And then running orthogonal to uh, these two versions of functionalism, machine functionalism and causal theoretical functionalism, is another distinction between what's called analytic or a priori functionalism and scientific or psycho-functionalism. And that's simply, are mental states confirmed empirically? That's the view of psychofunctionalism. Or is it simply true by definition that they have that particular aspect or quality or feature? That's analytic functionalism. Not many people buy into that. It seems absurd to think that how you see in depth is true by definition rather than something that uh, is empirically confirmed to be so. So not many people buy into analytic functionalism, but machine functionalism is a very powerful idea. Putnam had misgivings about the very doctrine that he introduced into philosophy of mind. He had misgivings in the 1970s, and these misgivings came together in 1987 in a book-length attempt to refute Machine functionalism, a book called Representation and Reality. In this book, he proposes four very important ideas. Each one is a separate refutation, but they all hang together in very interesting ways. He used the Godel theorem, the the incompleteness theorem, to refute functionalism, but he had to be very careful. People. In particular, John Lucas at Oxford in the 1960s and then Roger Penrose, a mathematical physicist in the 1980s, used the girdle incompleteness theorem to attempt to refute functionalism. The idea was that our minds go beyond a computational device, which would be restricted by the girdle incompleteness theorems, and so such devices computational devices, would not be able to prove that their own girdle sentences are true. But if we went beyond such devices, we could do so. And their arguments were subject to a very basic criticism that Putnam levied against them. Namely, it may be the case that we are not computational beings. That's to say, we go beyond the computable in terms of our mental capacities, in which case we wouldn't be subject to the girdle incompleteness theorems, but also we would not be describable as computing machines, or not wholly describable as computing machines. I mean, if we go beyond computing machines, then at best, some aspects of mental life might be computational, describable, but not all aspects. Well, Putnam said, look, what if the program for, say, computing something is so long that it is infeasible for any being with finite resources to actually survey it, then even if that program doesn't wholly describe our mental life, we would, even if we surpassed a computational device in terms of our cognitive powers, would not be able to show that that program is consistent just as the computational device which is subject to the girdle incompleteness theorems would not be able to show that it's consistent and so there would be no behavioral difference between us if we were beings that went beyond computational devices and beings that were purely computational in character And that's a basic fallacy in the arguments of Lucas and Penrose. Putnam thought he found a way out of that and created a fairly complicated self-referential sentence called the computational liar. But he thought that that would show that we are not, or not wholly, describable as computers. I've argued in a book that was published by MIT Press in 2008 that, in fact, that doesn't work. And in fact, It creates a paradox. Another argument that Putnam uses is one that goes back to John Searle and Ian Hinkfuss. It has to do with the fact that the definition of what it is for a physical system to physically realize a computational state is so loose that almost any physical object could physically realize a computational state. Now, the problem is, how do you put constraints on the definition of what it is for a physical object to physically realize a computational state? But until you've successfully done that, you run into what's called a triviality argument, namely, any physical object can physically realize any computational state, which means that cognitive science would be bankrupt. Why? Because if any physical object and the human brain is a physical object can realize any computational state then there would be no way of disconfirming a cognitive hypothesis about what functions we compute if we compute every single function. So it would make cognitive science absurd, namely We compute everything. Uh, We compute the function f, we compute the function not f. We compute functions that compete with other functions in terms of, say, which ones are the most satisfactory. We compute them all. And so cognitive science would be trivialized. And so that's the threat that's launched by a triviality argument. They had never been made precise by Searle or Hinckfuss. Putnam made A precise characterization of a triviality argument, I've argued against it and don't think it works. Third and fourth aspects of his refutation are fascinating. Just as Putnam ran a multi-realization argument against mind-brain identity theories, he thought he could do the same with mind-computational identity theories. That's to say if you reduce the mind to a computational device, He thought you could run a multi-realization argument, namely, there are many different ways in which you could compute the same function. So this is the idea that you brought up earlier, but you took it to be a virtue. Putnam took it to be a vice, a bad thing. That's to say you would have a reduction basis for a mental state, which would consist of many, many, possibly infinitely many different computational states. So, a single intentional state might be computationally multi-realized in infinitely many different ways, and that's very bad. Now, historically the response to mind-brain identity theories was to go local, just look at brains of human beings, and so you wouldn't have a big disjunction. If you didn't include other animal species, Putnam now worried, could you find some way of computably equivalence classing the many different computational realizations of an arbitrary, intentional, or mental state? If you could do that, if you could computably equivalence class, say, infinitely many, or An infeasibly large set of disjuncts into a small feasible set of equivalence classes then you would have effectively gone local and thus undercut the multi-realization objection. So what Putnam tried to do was to show that that was impossible, that you couldn't computably equivalence class. The argument is extraordinarily complex. And I don't think it works, and that's what I've argued. But my view is that Putnam's arguments are important, but they don't work. Recently, I've been in touch with Marcin Milkowski in Poland, who's reviewing my book, and his view is that the whole idea of representing mental states in some way, say as a computation, is the wrong way to go. What would be interesting would be a very deep diagnosis of what's wrong with the view of mental states as being represented, say, by computational states. There must be some deep problem that the whole idea of representation creates. But I don't see anyone yet has coming up with a diagnosis of this. Well, Kripke argued against functionalism. In footnote 24 in Wittgenstein on Rules and Private Language, he says that the argument he gives against dispositionalist accounts or solutions to the meaning normativity paradox, to the Kripkenstein paradox, the arguments that they don't work, that dispositionalist solutions don't work, can be extended to show that functionalist accounts of the mind don't work. The idea is actually fairly simple and it's actually there in Wittgenstein in philosophical investigations, but more than likely it's there only if you already know Kripke's development of it, and then you can see how to interpret Wittgenstein's words in such a way to see that, in fact, Kripke has it. But If you didn't have Kripke, I doubt you would be able to see in Wittgenstein's words that the argument is there. At any rate, the argument attacks functionalism not at its weakest point. In the literature, people have attacked functionalism at what they take to be its weakest point. Kripke attacks it at what he takes to be the strongest point, namely the fundamental idea of functionalism that a physical object is a physical realization of an abstract computational state. You might say a physical realization of a mathematical um, an abstract mathematical automaton. Here's the problem. Physical objects break down and so no physical object can perfectly physically realize a computational state because at some point it will break down. This is a problem. If a physical system is subject to breakdown, then you can't read off what it computes from its physical causal behavior. So we can't read off what functions we compute by looking at the physical causal behavior of our brain. But, in the same respect, we cannot reliably read off what functions a computer computes by looking at its physical causal behavior. Here's the amazing thing about Kripke's argument. It shows that not only are humans not capable of following rules with respect to their physical causal behavior, The same is true of machines, computing machines, no matter how good they are because they're also subject to breakdowns. And so, one way of describing Kripke's idea is not even an iPad can follow rules. Not even an iPad can properly compute because they also are physical objects that can break down and so imperfectly realize an abstract computational state. Now, this is a very radical idea. If developed, there are some very startling consequences of it. Here's one. We think we know what it is for a machine to break down. We think we know what it is when a machine is operating normally. So why don't we simply say, look, this machine is operating normally, therefore it is computing function f. This human brain is operating normally, therefore it is computing function f. Here's the problem with that. Because of the imperfect realization of an abstract state in a physical system, We have to idealize the behavior of the physical system in order to say that it is, in fact, realizing that particular abstract state. Or, with respect to a computer, that it realizes some particular function. But, if we idealize its behavior, we must already know what function it computes in order to idealize it in the right way. Here's one consequence of this idea. In order to say that we are operating normally, that we are functioning normally, we must already know what it is we compute. In order to say that a computer computes function f under normal conditions, to say what those normal conditions are, we must already know that it computes f. Similarly, If we say there's been a breakdown, if we say there's been an error in the computation, we must already know what function it computes in order to say that it is an error. This is very radical. Now, here's an extension that Kripke didn't make, but that comes out of what he says. Namely, it's incoherent to think we could live in a world in which there are no malfunctions. There's no such thing as no malfunctions because for any set of physical conditions we describe, that set of conditions could be, for one function, normal conditions, for another function, abnormal conditions. And so it makes no sense to say no malfunctions could occur. If I point to normal conditions, I must already know that The world is computing f rather than some other function. So it's incoherent to say we could live in a world where there are no malfunctions, where there are no breakdowns. The whole idea of a breakdown and of error is now up for grabs. This is a radical skepticism. Kripke hasn't not said anything about this. I just noticed this this past summer when I gave this talk at the University of Maryland. And even more radical, is that look at the very idea that underlies Kripke's refutation of functionalism. It's the mismatch between an abstract computational state and a physical device. No physical device can perfectly realize an abstract computational state. We can generalize this. Abstract state of any kind, including, say, numbers, a ruler, a measuring rod, is a physical device that physically realizes abstract states, namely numbers. And so, a radical generalization of Kripke's idea is that even measuring apparatus are subject to this refutation. One last thing, there is a connection between Kripke's argument against functionalism and is arguments for why dispositionalist solutions to the Kripke-Wittgenstein paradox fail. In 1974, Kripke proposed, but never developed the idea in any way, that there's a triple connection, namely the refutation of functionalism, why it is that dispositional accounts of the Kripke-Wittgenstein paradox can't work, and the incoherence of claiming that you can adopt a logic That's to say, you can simply say, I will use first-order classical logic, I will adopt first-order classical logic, Or, or I will adopt relevance logic, say propositional relevance logic of a certain kind. Kripke argued that it's incoherent to claim that you can adopt the logic. And he saw connections between these three things. How this connection will be developed, I think, will probably be the next great revolution in philosophy.
0: Jeff Buchner, thanks very much for an interview that uh, at no point was subject to any physical breakdown or malfunction.
1: <laughs> thanks, Matt.
0: If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidations_pod, And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.